0: What a joy again to come this morning uh, Ned I I'd forgotten that story about the, the ceiling I <laughs> I I think it was the drywall mutter who was up there working on it and and there was no electric here yet and so he was up there working on it and he said you know I, I really think it would be great if uh, if you put a popcorn finish and you could even put sparkly uh, things in the popcorn finish and and I looked up and I said, well, you're doing the drywall mudding. I think it'd be great if you did such a good job that we didn't have to have the uh, popcorn first. Yes. And I'm uh, <laughs> not sure if he'd like to hear that or not, but that's that's what he heard. So he <laughs> and he did a fine job. He did a fine job. You know, it is it is a joy uh, not only to renew fellowship, uh, but to uh, uh, see so many new folks. And uh, what a joy that... Uh, Ned and I have a a good friendship and relationship and good fellowship. That doesn't always happen, and I thank you for that. And uh, uh, I really am blessed by that and blessed by the invitation to come back. So, well, let's turn our attention to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. I know you were a little later in uh, 1 John 2 uh, a couple weeks ago, I think, uh, as Ken brought you the word. We're gonna be looking at the first six verses of 1 John chapter two. This is God's inerrant and inspired word. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins Father, as we come to your word, we come first with thankful hearts that you have have revealed yourself to us in your word, in your written word and in the word made flesh who dwelt among us. We thank you, O Lord, that, that where your people meet, there you are in the midst of them, and so we thank you that you are here among us. By your spirit, we thank you that your spirit leads into all truth. May your spirit work through the truth of your word, for your word is true. May your spirit work through that word upon our hearts and grant us assurance this day. May we know, O Lord, your work in our hearts. May your spirit testify to our spirits that we are your children. So bless us, O Lord, this day we pray. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe and understand, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We come to that second part of the catechism, which speaks of the satisfaction of the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer, that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil. So we're looking this morning at the satisfaction of our great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to look at this satisfaction as as John brings it to us here in 1 John chapter 2. Now, John has already talked about sin in the previous chapter. We know a couple of those verses very well. I'm sure we've heard them recited, repeated. We've recited them, perhaps, uh, those words in verses 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he is... Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What marvelous words of promise that if we confess, the Lord is faithful to forgive. But just prior to that, in 1 John chapter 1 there, he is speaking about the reality that if we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. Verse 8 in chapter 1 of 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Again, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, So either we are deceived, or we are, by saying that we have no sin, we are making God out to be a liar. Now, in no way is he wanting us to think that it's okay for us to sin. He is not promoting sin. He's not justifying sin. He's not saying that sin is okay in the life of the believer, but he recognizes that in the life of the believer, there will be, until the return of Christ, the presence of sin. We're going to see that that he acknowledges the fact that the power of sin has been removed and the penalty for sin has been removed for the Christian, but the presence of sin has not been removed. And that's what he's speaking about. So he's not trying to say, it's okay to justify your sin and to walk in your sin, but what happens when you do sin? And we see in chapter one that if we sin and confess it, We know his forgiveness. And in chapter 2, he begins writing these things, and he addresses those to whom he writes as little children. What precious words. He he is looking as a father, as a spiritual father on those to whom he's writing. And he's calling them little children out of endearment. And he wants to bring to them great comfort. Great comfort in a time when when if they fall into sin, they, they need to know that they have an advocate with the Father. That's the first thing that we want to look at this morning. I'm writing these things to you, verse 1, so that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin. I'm trying to dissuade you from sinning. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so he is looking at the whole idea here of of the recognition of the presence of sin in the life of the believer and what we do in the face of it. What we shouldn't do is what we spoke about last night with regard to the the Pharisee, and the tax collector. We shouldn't be like the Pharisee who who stood there saying, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. We shouldn't justify our sin. We shouldn't deceive ourselves. We shouldn't call God a liar. But we should be like the tax collector who not even able to look to heaven, said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what we should do in the midst of our sin. And in the midst of our confession of sin before God, we recognize that we have an advocate. So he gives to us great comfort here in calling Jesus Christ our advocate. The word in the original is a word that you have heard, no doubt, referred to the Holy Spirit, a paraclete. One who comes alongside, one who is a helper. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus speaks and promises to give another helper to his disciples. There, in that marvelous passage in which Jesus is, is talking about the comfort that he is going to give. As he's speaking in John 14 of his own impending death. And he speaks about um, the peace that he gives. Not as the world gives does he give. Right there in John 14. He promises in that same chapter another helper, a comforter. And indicates by that that he himself is a comforter and a helper. Jesus Christ the righteous one is our advocate he is is not just our helper but he is one who comes to our defense as our defendant you think about a, a court in which God is the plaintiff and he appoints his son as the intercessor our helper our defendant he bears our nature Book of Hebrews, chapter 2, indicates that, for he, speaking of Christ, who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Christ has taken on our flesh. He is our brother. He stands in our defense. He is one who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, having been tempted as every, in every way as we are tempted, yet without sin. And so he comes to our aid before the, the righteous judgment seat of God. He, he, bearing our nature, is also the Messiah of God who has come to fulfill all righteousness. And so he stands as our advocate, as our defendant, as our helper, before the father and he is righteous in every way. He has not given into the temptation and the weakness which we have given into. And so John is dissuading us from sin here and assuring us that when we do sin, we have such an advocate, such a defendant who is coming to our aid. And isn't that what the prophet Isaiah Speaks about when he talks about Christ. He's a wonderful counselor. A mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's a a wonder of a counselor, is what Jesus Christ is. And so, when we do fall into sin, it's not that we're to justify it, excuse it, act as though it's not true of us, we're to go with all humility before the Father, knowing that we have this one who is our defendant. Who stands before the righteous judgment of God, and we deserve his wrath and displeasure. But our, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, defends us before the Father. For not only was he righteous in every way and without sin, but he is the one in whom alone we have forgiveness, for he gave his very life, taking in his body the wrath of God in our place. But John doesn't stop there. When we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous, and then he says in verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The propitiation for our sins this word has been translated in a number of different ways. It appears in three other places. It appears in Romans and I just want to briefly look at those two places those three other places this morning. But in Romans chapter three, we see it appear in verse 25. Beginning at verse 23, I'm sure you all know Romans three twenty-three: For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In verse 24 and 25, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith the whole concept that we talk about in this time of year, that we are justified, that we are declared righteous by the righteous and holy judge himself, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but on the basis of the righteousness of our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins. In 1 John Again in 1 John chapter 4, we read of the propitiation of Christ. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then. In the book of Hebrews, we see it one more time, chapter 2 and verse 17. Therefore, speaking of Christ, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So what does this word mean? If you look at various translations, the Revised Standard Version uses the translation of expiation. And that, that heading on the word ex, meaning to come out of or from, suggesting that there is a removal of something. The idea would be the, the removal of the penalty of sin. That the penalty of sin has been met and paid in Christ. The word that our translation uses, propitiation, the ESP, the prefix pro is the idea of being for you. That God is no longer against us, that we are no longer his enemies. But that we have been reconciled to God, that God. Because of Christ's perfect obedience and death on the cross, he delivers us, as Paul says, from the wrath that is to come. So we have the idea of expiation, the idea of propitiation. What is it? Which one is the proper translation? And the answer is Yes. He takes away the penalty of sin and he is our advocate and he brings us and reconciles us to the Father so that we who once were sinners have been saved by his blood and we can come into the presence of our triune God without fear but with great confidence. Christ offers himself as the righteous one in our place. He is our substitute. He satisfies divine justice. God's wrath is satisfied in the obedience of Christ upon the cross. He offered himself for our sin. And so in every, in every sense, he has fully paid the penalty, satisfied God's wrath, and turn God's wrath from us. You know, in the Old Testament sacrificial system in Leviticus chapter 16, there was a a, a two-sided approach. There were two goats. One was to be sacrificed, and the blood from the sacrifice was to be sprinkled on the altar, on the mercy seat. And Aaron, the priest, was to place his hands on the, other, on the other goat and to transfer the sin to the goat and send it outside the camp. And so the idea of both sacrifice and the idea of a substitute was there before us in the Levitical system. And the author of the book of Hebrews reminds us that is not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the precious blood of Christ that we have been redeemed. Christ is both the sacrifice and the substitute upon whom our sin was placed and who becomes a curse for us so that God's wrath is satisfied. Oh, friends, what a precious. Precious gift we have been given in Jesus Christ. He not only rescues us, He redeems us, He restores us, and through His blood we are forgiven. Because He has borne God's wrath for our sin upon the cross, He removes the power and the guilt of sin there upon the cross. The power of sin has been stripped, stripped of its power. The penalty has been erased. The sacrifice of Christ also means that one day the presence of sin will be removed completely from us. We long for that day, don't we? We long for that day when, when we no longer have to confess that we are Sinners in the sight of God. When we, when we no longer have to confess the reality and the presence of sin in our own hearts and minds. In our own actions. We long for that day. But even now we have the assurance. That while the penalty of sin has been removed. And the power of sin has been removed. One day for certain. Its presence will be ever removed from us. Because the demands of God's law have been met by the perfect obedience of our Savior Jesus Christ. And that not only gives to us the full assurance of sins forgiven, but of the future hope and presence of the removal completely of sin. Oh, what love the Father has for us that we should be called children of God. Oh, what love that He would send forth his son to be the propitiation for our sins. But the third thing that we note in these first two verses of chapter 2. The third thing that we note here is that the work of Christ on the cross. Is for the sins of the whole world. Now John. John is not indicating here in any sense that this is a universal salvation. That would be a contradiction to the rest of what scripture teaches. We know that there is a judgment to come. We know that there are those who are going to face the judgment and who are going to be eternally separated from the Father in eternal judgment. There is no such thing as universal salvation. So what is he referring to here? He is referring to the reality of what he talks about in the book of Revelation as he he has a vision of heaven. And I want to take you there for just a moment in Revelation chapter 5. John has a vision. And he has a vision of heaven itself. I'm going to begin reading in verse one. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written, and on the back sealed with seven seals. It was written within and on the back, and sealed with seven seals. Very, very important. Normally, a uh, a uh, The scroll was only written on the front, but this is the front and the back, and it's sealed seven times, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it, and I began to weep. John is seeing this vision, and he's weeping. On this scroll, written front and back, is God's eternal and sovereign purpose for all of history. And John sees this scroll, and no one who's able to open it seals, and he begins to weep. Weep loudly, he says, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the con- his, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and four living creatures, among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the, all the earth. And he took the scroll from the right hand of him who, and you made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. He has this vision in which he he beholds Christ who is able to come, the Lamb who was slain, able to come and open the scroll to, to very much enact the great and eternal plan of God for all eternity in regard to redemption and there we see, <clears throat> surrounding the throne, the four creatures, uh, perhaps illustrative of, the, of those from the north and the south and the east and the west. And we see the church, the 24 elders around the throne, representing the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. And as they're magnifying the lamb what are they saying worthy are you to take his scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation And that's what John's saying here in 1 John chapter 2 that Jesus Christ is that propitiatory sacrifice He is the substitute for our sin, and not only for ours, but for those from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. All who who will look to Christ by faith are part of that great crowd that is gathered before the throne, praising the Lamb who is worthy to open the scroll. And so we find in 1 John chapter 2, their acknowledgement that Jesus' sacrifice is for those who by faith come from the whole world. That Christ was obedient to every point of the law, obedient even unto death on the cross to satisfy God's wrath for sinners who by faith are in communion and fellowship with Christ. Oh, friends, this sacrifice, this sacrifice which removes the guilt and the power of sin and satisfies the wrath of God, this sacrifice is the sacrifice by which we are able to commune and fellowship with the Father and come into his presence and know the assurance that our sins have been forgiven. And so how do we know that this this is us? John speaks to that, and we know this, verse 3, that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. How do you know you belong to Jesus Christ? How do you know that by faith you are in communion and fellowship, that his sacrifice and propitiation is the propitiation for your sins? It's because you desire from a heart that's been transformed to walk in obedience to Christ. Well, there are many things in the word of God that command us to obey. And here we are, we are given a heart to do what the Lord wants us to do. To walk in obedience to his commands. It is not that we don't see the presence of sin in our lives. We do. But it grieves us. And we turn from that sin in grief and we turn to confess our sin and we know the forgiveness of that sin through Jesus Christ. And we know that Christ is our advocate, who is our defense attorney, as it were, standing in our place, being the substitute and sacrifice for our sin. And we are grieved and yet we are assured that our sins are forgiven. And we desire to go and sin no more. And this is a comfort. No doubt a comfort in life. But also a comfort on our dying day. That Christ has paid the full complete penalty for our sin. And we have been set free. Free from its penalty and free from its power. a renowned Southern Presbyterian theologian who's come under some great conflict in our day, but nonetheless, Robert Louis Dabney moved to Virgin- from Virginia to Texas almost 20 years after the Civil War. And he lived there for about 15 years before he became ill. In his latter years, he became blind and weak, and he knew that death was approaching. And he wrote to his old friend C.R. Vaughan in the, in the weak moments as he was pondering the life hereafter. And he wondered, as he wrote in his letter to C.R. Vaughan, if, he had enough, if his faith was strong enough, if he had enough faith to bring him to heaven. Here was a, a theologian and a pastor Here was one who was wondering in his dying day, do I have enough faith to make it to heaven? And his former student, C.R. Vaughan, wrote back to Robert Louis Dabney and asked Dabney what would a traveler do if he came to a chasm over which there was a bridge that was spanning the chasm. And this is what he said in his response to, to Dabney. What does this traveler do to breed confidence in the bridge? He looks at the bridge. He gets down and examines the bridge. He doesn't stand at the bridgehead and turn his thoughts curiously to his own mind and and wonder if he has any great confidence in the bridge. Do I have enough confidence in myself to walk across this bridge? If this examination of the bridge gives him a certain amount of confidence, and yet he wants more confidence, what does the traveler do? He continues to examine the bridge. And so C.R. Vaughan said to his dear friend, Robert Louis Dabney, Now, my dear old man, let your faith take care of itself for a while, and you just think of what you're allowed to trust in. Think of the master's power. Think of his love. Think how he is interested in the soul that searches for him and will not be comforted until he finds him. Think of what he has done, his work. That blood of his that is mightier than all the sins of all the sinners that ever lived. don't you think it will master yours? Now, dear old friend, I've done to you just what I would want you to do to me if I were lying in your place. The greatest theologian, after all, is just like any other one of God's children. And the simple gospel talk to him is just as essential to comfort him as it is to the milkmaid or the plowboy. May God give you grace not to lay too much stress on your faith, but to grasp the great ground of confidence, Christ and all his work and all his personal fitness to be the sinner's refuge. Faith is only an eye to see him, I have been praying that God would quiet your pains as you advance and enable you to see the gladness of the gospel at every step. God be with you as he will. Think of the bridge. Friends, let me ask you, what is your comfort in life and in death? The only comfort in life and in death is that we have a Faithful Savior who is fully satisfied for all of our sins. Made a perfect satisfaction bearing the penalty for our sin, stripping the power from sin, and one day promising us that we will be removed from its presence. And so the question is, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in his saving work? And if you have, take great confidence not in the strength of your faith but in the strength of a savior who's able to save to the uttermost. Most recently, a friend of mine who pastors, I think Ned knows him, Lee Hutchings. Lee quoted one of his high school Bible teachers who said this, Only when you are ready to die are you truly ready to live. What is your comfort? What is my comfort? To belong to Jesus Christ. To know that he is fully, completely, perfectly satisfied for all of my sins. And to rest upon Christ Confessing my sins knowing if I confess he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins. Are you his? Are you in fellowship and communion with Christ? And you should have such great comfort and assurance this day because our Savior Jesus Christ is faithful. He who gave his life is faithful and promises us that where he is, there we shall be also. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for Christ. Your Son, our Savior, the one who gave his very life's blood. Lord, may we look to him by faith but may we not take confidence in the strength and power of our faith, but in the strength and power of our Savior. May we rest in him this day and find comfort in the full assurance that he is satisfied for all our sins. Bless us now, we pray, through Christ our Savior.